What you're telling me is that music is about to stop, and we're going to be left holding the biggest bag of odorous excrement ever assembled in the history of darkness. 1974, 1987, 92, 97, 2000, and whatever we want to call this. It's all just the same thing over and over. We can't help ourselves. I say when we sell. Hey, 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 I say when we sell. Awesome. Episode six of The Last Trade. Gentlemen, there's a lot going on in the world of Bitcoin, and we are joined by David Thayer, executive advisor at Blackstone, who has an interesting road to Bitcoin, and we were just riffing on it pre-record. Well, I was getting my audio fixed. You guys were pre-riffing on it, but I guess that stands as a good jumping off point, David, is your journey to Bitcoin and how you transition from the incumbent financial world and, and found Bitcoin are very passionate about it right now. Yeah, sure. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And of course, uh, I should preface it by just saying that uh, I'm obviously speaking on my own behalf, not on Blackstone's. But, um, but as it so happens, uh, a partner of mine at the firm and I, uh, who both tend to lean libertarian, were... Uh, turned on to Bitcoin way back in 2011, and it kind of immediately resonated because we sort of understood the alternative to fiat story. And uh, I forget the exact price at the time you guys would know, but, you know, it was eight cents or eight bucks or something. It's just so preposterously low. But, um, you know, the firm was growing and we had other distractions. So we, neither of us did anything about it, tragically, uh, even though we kind of saw, saw the use case immediately. Um and then it so happens that um, some years later, Alex Glassy and I, uh, whom I had known, by the way, for years, I mean, I was help, helpful in launching HRF, uh, Human Rights Foundation, back in, I think, 2005, um, got to talking about Bitcoin. And uh, this is like the mid-teens, maybe. And as you know, he was sort of the tip of the spear when it comes to using Bitcoin for the purposes of uh assisting dissidents around the world. And uh, his story is well known, thank God, because it's done so much good for the world. Um, but even then, I was sort of like, you know, swapping and comparing notes with with Alex, uh, and yet still not investing, partly, I'm sure, out of pride. And uh, and finally, in 2020, he uh, he gave me a good kick in the pants. Just like he sent me an article by Lynn Alden. He's like, it's about sticking time. And thankfully, uh, the, the pricing was fortuitous, so I got some of the upside. But uh, but yeah, for a guy who knew about it in 2011, it's kind of tragic that uh, uh, I didn't do more with it at the time. But um, you know, while I'm on that point, I should mention as well that, uh, and I mentioned this down in, in Miami, Alex and I had hosted a function um, at the Bitcoin conference, that you know, originally I was kind of thinking of it more as a, as a financial investment, but you know now perhaps you share this view. I, I see it as a social investment with a financial call option embedded um, because there are all many there are already so many compelling use cases that go well beyond investing in the hope that uh, number go up. Yeah, it's a it's a classic story that the, the three touch points over time with increasing regret and then acceptance as part of that journey. Uh, everybody has, has their story for, for that. I mean, for me as a millennial, it was watching in 2013, seeing technology money, digital internet money shoot up in value and think, and thinking, 
I, I should have been on that. Like that was, that was my bread and butter, my wheelhouse as an internet native. I missed out. And then, you know, that's the first point of regret for me. And then you hear about it again, and then you finally get it on the third time. But you're right that it, it's, it's an important aspect of Bitcoin that we don't talk enough about that by participating in Bitcoin, you're, you are growing the network effect which benefits the whole world. It, it benefits anybody who's in Bitcoin now, but it benefits anybody who could benefit from Bitcoin in the future, which is everybody, the entire world, and especially everyone who's unbanked. Because if Bitcoin succeeds, we're, we're elevating the, everyone in the world who's been cut off from tra traditional finance and banking and property rights. And so you participating, you coming to Bitcoin, even if you're you know, upset that you, you should have gotten in in 2011, but you're prepared to get in in, in 2020 or 2021, um, that adds another node to the social network of Bitcoin and you know, adds to that um, you know, exponential function of the network effects value. And that helps elevate people who don't yet know they need Bitcoin and will get, the, get here 5, 10, 15 years from now. Yeah, one thing, uh, David, you shared, and it's, I find just I yeah, hear, I've heard it the past few years, and I think I've talked about it before, but I don't think I've told you or the, maybe this group is um, 2020 was almost like this this uh, spiritual uh, enlightenment that happened in that year where we talk about now, like there's a lot of things happening. And Marty and I talk about this offline a lot. You see on Twitter, it's just like this Overton window moving. But um, also in 2020, you think about the amount of the number of people that came in to the space and part of uh, into Bitcoin and understood it and they had been hearing about it. There's a lot of people that were like 16, 17, 18, but it was 2020 when they really like put time and capital in. And one of the common thoughts is it's because of, you know, M1 money supply and the trillions that were printed. And that was no, no mistake. It was part of that. But what I've found um, in my time and in like when we all were onboarding folks and capital was that uh, that Bitcoin we say it's like it's not a uh, an IQ test; it's a common sense test, and the same function that it doesn't require super intelligence. It requires time to look at the problem. And the reality is, most people don't have the time because they're you know on the hamster wheel of, of life with their family or work. And in that twenty twenty, people were locked in a box, and so they were just able to look at this problem and understand like what yeah. I've been hearing about this. And so it's just fascinating that there was a lot of bad that happened in twenty twenty, but at the same time, so many people were woke like woke up to what's happening. They'll never look backwards into what happened before or, or look at it the same way. Yeah, exactly. By the way, I yeah. should. Uh, well, I'm thinking about it. Let me just share that. Um, you know, I went to my first Bitcoin conference in Miami, and I'm sure you guys were there in twenty twenty one, following my own little sort of re orange pilling. Uh, thanks to Alex, and. Um, you know, like uh, being the normie, I, I fly in. And I figure I'll just go right from the airport to the conference. So I have my luggage. And I'm wearing, you know, like normies, <laughs> not a suit, but almost. And, you know, everybody's there in cargo shorts and flip flops. And, you know, there's that line circling around the block. And, uh, you know, I finally get into the venue and I'm like, OK, so where can I put my luggage? They're like a luggage. Like, what are you talking about? This is like, you know, I'm like prepared for like a corporate conference. And um, that was uh that was uh, sort of emblematic of you know the the Wall Street normie kind of wading into the the Bitcoin space. Love that. Yep, that yeah. that's true. People in Bitcoin are here to have uh, here to have fun because the, they're casting off the old world and um, 
Don't want to wear a suit you know, to a conference. Sorry to interrupt, Jesse, but you know it also reminds me that you know the conferences obviously have gotten ever more professionals. The last couple have been just you know like wildly well produced, I thought, and um, and so we're kind of I hope meeting in the middle somewhere. Whereas you yeah. know the, the space is maturing, and then other people are kind of entering the space as well as we as we yeah. grow. I think that's right. I think I think the reality of this is is you know, as Bitcoin moves through the adoption curve, it becomes more mainstream. It it people are going to show up more and more professional because currently, like early adopters, if you got in five plus years ago, you, you already have a little bit of fuck you money from that, and like you mm. don't need anything. If you mm. if you're a 2011 adopter, you're showing up to a Bitcoin conference to celebrate. You're not you're not there to, to make deals, probably. Um, right. And you know, as as time goes on and people are showing up to conferences because they're trying to, you know, network or or do something you know, on a professional scene, I think that element will creep in, and it will be a source of of um, disappointment for early mm-hmm. Bitcoiners. You know, as the mm-hmm. culture shifts from the celebratory thing to a more professionalized environment, but. That's the, that's the reality of successful adoption is, you know, it becomes a professional part of the world. And, you know, there will always be that, that, that early set, but, um, you know, Bitcoin's for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. maybe we'll talk about later, but, the the, this, uh, BlackRock ETF and the follow on ETF, um, uh, uh, proposals filings, uh, are, I think too symptomatic of that, Jesse. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of going mainstream and it's creating this ripple effect where it's like the Allens of the world think, oh, crap, what are we doing here? And I'm sure, you know, I've heard the three of you say some of that as well. And yet, by the same token, it's probably inevitable. And maybe uh, maybe it's worth just sort of accepting the inevitable and figuring out how best to go from here. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think there's two things to build on with this particular line of thinking. With Parker, a couple of weeks ago, we sort of ran through the volatility question that people have, like how can Bitcoin be store of value if it's so volatile? And I think Parker did a very good job of explaining why that can be the case. And then similar here with what you were saying earlier, Jesse, is people get in early, see a lot of uh, value accretion as Bitcoin monetizes, and most of the public looks at Bitcoiners in this space and says, hey, you guys are just looking to get rich. You're looking to pump your bags. But you mentioned as Bitcoin's network effect grows, it, it benefits everybody. So I think that's another thing we can touch on is, is yes, there are people who are early adopters who will benefit massively from this, but even the laggards will benefit from Bitcoin adoption and the network effect that grows. And then building on that, obviously institutions like BlackRock, Fidelity, Citadel, get into the space will significantly increase the network effect and the liquidity in uh, Bitcoin and within the network. And so just building on those two things, number one, why does Bitcoin as it appreciates benefit everybody and not just early adopters? And what has been the catalyst to push more institutions into the space? Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing too, I know that, uh, you guys know this, but you know, it's like, do we really resent the guys who did the early um, uh, pick and shovel work 
when it comes to, for instance, the internet, I mean, I, I, I'm sure there are some who, you know, resent that wealth, but I, I don't hear a lot about it in sort of social discourse. And uh, I'm hoping that the same goes for Bitcoin, that over time, people are like, all right, well, you know, the early adopters kind of um, won the brass ring, but is that so bad? That's just kind of the American story. Yeah, I, I, I wrote a, a, a piece about this a few months ago. This was this was one of the final um, reservations I had about like fully embracing Bitcoin future was, you know, you, everyone has this this feeling that because it's a finite supply, whoever got, you know, a large chunk of it early is going to be wealthy forever, you know, and, and their their future generations will be, you know, the billionaires of 100 years from now. Um, and that's true to some extent, but the the American parallel of uh, real estate in the West um, really helped pr provide an example for me of how this has played out in the past over the last couple hundred years. And uh, I'm in California, and in California, um, land was originally distributed via the rancho system that the Mexican government set up. Um, and that was here, we're going to give you Mexican citizen that we trust uh, 10,000 acres of Southern Californian land. Um, it's, you know, it, it's rugged and you're going to have to, you're going to be our steward, our, um, you know, legal representative, the landowner, you know, responsible for this large chunk of land in Southern California. And that's how the LA area, all of South, Southern California was distributed to landowners. And of course, now fast forward 100, 100 150 years, uh, there aren't any 10,000 acre ranches in California anymore because those successive generations sold off big chunks of those ranches, all of those ranches in most cases, in order to fund their lifestyle because suddenly they were sitting on a very valuable asset and they wanted to you know, enjoy that wealth. So they sold large acreage and parceled that off to real estate developers. So that's how, you know, large chunks of wealth distribute over time in, in our recent history in the, in the American story. And that's how Bitcoin is going to go as well. Yeah, I love that analog. Yeah, yeah I, I happened to come across that because uh, I went to a wedding for the like sixth generation descendant of one of the one of those uh, ranchos, you know, families. So you know, mm. he's of the family that that area is named for. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so there's all these personal stories of like, you know, infighting and, you know, having to pay the inheritance taxes over time. And how do you do that? You sell more land. Um, so, you know, very human way to learn about that mechanic of wealth distribution over time. Yeah, one thing um, that yeah. you know, we talk about that is a, a little controversial in the space is the um, like the order of operations on you know the people coming in and, and Bitcoin is for everyone and it benefits everyone, but the reality is um, the the majority there's a centralization of capital in North America and nodes and there's just a a function of the money coming in providing more liquidity and providing more value for everybody, including emerging markets, and I think that kind of sometimes gets. Um, misdiagnosis, we need to go to certain markets and it, and it makes sense to go everywhere and, uh, you know, have a, you, 
it makes sense to go everywhere and expend the resources and time. But from a prioritization standpoint to benefit everyone, at least in my mind, there is this function of building the right products uh, for capital to flow in because of that liquidity profile benefits everyone. And this ties into, you know, the Black Rocks and Citadel and everybody getting a space. The reality is the market's going to give us and we have to take it and then build around it redundant or resilient products. And this is partially what we're doing here at OnRamp. Um, but I think there's not enough discussion about, in my mind, where is the focus? We have exchanges. We've had the exchanges that look similar for the past 10 years. We have custodians that have looked very similar in the past 10 years. And it's like, how do we bridge that gap with institutions, pensions, endowments into making them feel comfortable, whether it's with the familiarity of like asset management style, uh, product services, client services. And so I guess maybe on that, David, I'd be interested in kind of like, you know, given your background, what is, uh, what's been the, the thought, you know, up to date, again, not speaking from Blackstone's perspective, but just within your peer group on, on this asset class and looking at it as a alternative asset amongst others, you know, any thoughts you can share there on what, you know, the, the past, I think you said you've had involvement since 11, but not really until 2020 having a personal allocation, but anything you can share on just your peers and their familiarity or, or feedback about Bitcoin. Sure. Well, I, I guess a few things. I mean, one is that, um, you know, look and feel counts for something. And so uh, I think as the space develops, um, sort of the less uh, tech-centric interfaces that um, that one encounters, uh, the better. Um, because, you know, if it looks and feels too techy, um, and I've noticed this in logging on to some other exchanges and custodians, um, you know, the, the greater the barrier, and that goes for individuals as well. But, you know, when it comes to institutions, I think one of the things is, you know, reputational. And I think you know, we, we've been done no favors by the conflation with DeFi and some of the horror shows that were totally predictable that we've witnessed over the past couple of years. Um, and so we'll collectively have to do a better job distinguishing ourselves. I know that everyone on this call is doing their best to kind of make that happen. Um, but beyond that too, I think it's ultimately about, uh, safety, security, um, the sense that one's Bitcoin is, is, uh, stored appropriately. And, uh, you know, that gets a lot of attention as you can well imagine the institutional space, no matter what the asset class. And, um, you know, ultimately if one looks kind of underneath the covers, uh, and reads between the lines, not to, not to mix metaphors, but um, <laughs> it's uh, you know it's really about making sure that the individual decision makers are not making massive mistakes. And um, uh, so, if something does go south, it's not sort of like how could you have allowed that to happen? It's not sort of a career risk. And so, there's a lot of focus placed on that. And so, as a space, as a, as a community, I think as we roll out new products, and this would go for uh, on ramp as well, that um, uh, you know, placing an emphasis on that, I think would do a lot to gain institutional acceptance. And then, yeah, as, uh, as these ETFs come online, assuming they do, I think that's going to go a long way in that direction, even though, you know, there's a lot of hair on these things that may not be ideal. Maybe we can discuss that a little bit later, but I, I guess offhand, those are some things that I think would help us mature as a space. And then as we get past this DeFi thing and Bitcoin is able to distinguish itself, um, I think it will gain some acceptance and let's face it already in the late teens, 
I think it was Harvard and some other well-known endowments had invested in Bitcoin. So it's not like unheard of. Um, and the, the sharp ratios and the lack of correlation traditionally, except for, I guess it was last year, um, has really, you know, uh, reflected well upon the space, not to mention the, 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 the world beating returns over the course of the past 10 years. Yeah, that's actually um, super fascinating. You know, and the uh, it's something that Parker would talk a lot about is like you don't want to be an application. It's not tech. It's not a technology application because it looks that it's almost like the prettier it is, it's almost scarier that it can just all evaporate. You know, versus something that's tangible. And then that also reminded me of I, I think over time over this next de- decade we'll see a resurgence in like uh, the corner or the, the corner bank or the bank that is uh, it'll look you know, it's either it will merge with a traditional bank or it'll just be a, a de novo, like brand new firm where you take something that's ephemeral that's out there and then you're able to put a, fir- a face and a name and the kind of, a, you know, accountability to it where mm-hmm. you can actually sit and talk to somebody. Because right now everything went digital uh, on the banking side, but I think there's something there that will play over the course of the next decade to build trust within the, the ecosystem. Yeah, one other thing, actually two things. One is the self-custody issue. And I go, you're, you're working on solving some of those problems, but, um, you know, self-custody is still such a hurdle for people to a degree, even including me. It's like, if somebody can kind of crack that code to, to, to help people understand it and the importance of it and, and make it kind of user-friendly, I think that would go a long way. And I should have mentioned earlier too, that, you know, emphasizing as a community, emphasizing the social good that Bitcoin does, I think would go a huge way toward institutional acceptance. Cause that's, that's not like some sort of gloss that we're applying to the space. That's absolutely real and tangible. And, um, and I'm, I don't think a lot of people are fully aware of that it still, as you know, gets this sort of, uh, well, isn't this used for money launderers? And I mean, this is like such an old story. And of course it ignores the, 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 the place that good old cash, uh, uh, plays in that whole, uh, sort of underground economy. And, and so Bitcoin's even better than cash, right? I mean, even, uh, did you see the interview with, I think it was Nassim Taleb uh, that CNBC had done recently? Mm-hmm. Of he acknowledges that as sort of a disadvantage of Bitcoin that it could be too easily audited. I'm like, wait, what? Like, and that's, yeah. uh, that speaks in its favor, but nonetheless. The mental pretzel that guy found himself in on that CNBC interview is uh, just, it's amazing. Bitcoin exposes basically everybody over, over enough time. Right, uh, right. You, you mentioned uh, auditing and it, it, we were talking before the, the, the podcast about, you know, the, the various pieces of, of your background or specifically like traumas that led you to realizing that Bitcoin had legs or had value. And one of the things for me, and, and I share this with a number of, of um, Bitcoin writers, was I was I went through an accounting program. I went through the same accounting program as Pierre Rochard, which was really training people to become auditors in big four firms. And then here you encounter this thing. Once you get under the surface and you start learning about it, it, it audits itself every 10 minutes. It, that's, that's an incredible dream for someone who's, you know, had to appreciate the, the, the importance of the audit function um, in, from an academic sense or whatever. And, and here it is, this, this dream realized um, and that was one of the pieces for me of like, oh, this has value. Uh, and, and David, I was curious to hear a little bit of if you care to share about, you know, the, 
the sequence of uh, events that led you to realize, oh, Bitcoin has value? Yeah, well, maybe it's uh, best cast in the light of what I did wrong, which is um, so after uh, that um, series of revelations around about the 2020 timeframe, I then became uh, interested in DeFi. And again, I'll, I'll mention that Alex warned me against it, but nonetheless, I couldn't help myself. And so I went down that rabbit hole, found it very interesting. And, you know, gee whiz, if I miss Bitcoin, maybe I can uh, take advantage of the um, you know, this, this growing um, space called DeFi, invest in a few firms, uh, you know, sort of hedge funds in that space. And, um, and thank God, thank God, I came back from the 2022 Bitcoin conference and the scales fell from my proverbial eyes. And I realized that, uh, no, 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 it's all about Bitcoin. And so I asked our advisor to, um, to ditch all those investments and get back to Bitcoin only just in the nick of time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I kind of now recognize what doesn't have value, at least in my estimation and, uh, and what does, and, you know, Bitcoin, as we've discussed has value beyond just sort of, uh, mere financial measures. And, um, it's really exciting. You know, the, the vibe, and I've been told this by others, the vibe at a Bitcoin conference is very different than at these other DeFi conferences because those other conferences are devoted to making money. And I have no problem making money, okay? Like I'm a free marketeer and I think that does a lot of uh, social good for the world. I mean, that's the, the beauty of capitalism is that uh, the, the profit incentive uh, leads to exciting products at cheap prices for everybody um, and makes poor people uh, much richer than they would otherwise be. It benefits the poor more so than it does anyone else. And so uh, so it's not that I'm casting aspersions on the, on the profit motive or on free markets. It's really just that there are these collateral benefits that uh, accrue to Bitcoin investments. And, um, and you know, there again, it benefits the poor most. So the vibe at a Bitcoin conference is very different because I think a lot of us are there because it's like, you know, it's become sort of a social mission. And, um, and it's really exciting. It's, it's, a, it's I, I mean, I love those conferences. I'm sure you guys do too. Yeah. And on that point, just to really sort of draw the picture for anybody maybe new to Bitcoin and new to this podcast particularly. We discussed it last week and Michael mentioned the order of operations and I'm a big believer that one of the first order of operations for Bitcoin's long-term success and realizing the benefits it has for society more broadly is the energy sector. Like really tying Bitcoin mining as uh, a part of the stack for the energy sector makes them more profitable, makes them more efficient and really helps drive prices lower uh, in the energy sector. So that's just one way we're talking about uh, mo the monetization of Bitcoin. Yes, early adopters will massively benefit from its monetization process. But one thing we have to mention is, is the goal of Bitcoin is to create a sound monetary system in the digital age. And everybody benefits from that, even if you're the very last person to adopt Bitcoin. That, that is what has really corrupted the world right now is the ability to uh, corrupt the pricing mechanism of the global economy, which is effectively the dollar right now. And if you can manipulate interest rates and expand and contract the monetary base on a whim, that really doesn't allow the market to have an accurate pricing mechanism, which Bitcoin brings to the market. And when it does, the economy globally will be able to, uh, be, able to be facilitated much more efficiently. Capital allocation, again, will come 
with true opportunity costs, which in the long run makes forces people to make better decisions economically that hopefully uh, increase productivity, drive down prices, and allow people uh, to operate throughout the economy using good information, which is the pricing mechanism. Uh, and then beyond that, just the network. So that's the asset side of things and the energy side of things. Then the peer-to-peer -peer network uh, really drives value for individuals. Like David was mentioning, uh, people in emerging markets or who are living under despotic regimes, the fact that Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer -peer network on top of that and the, the network can't, or not the network, the uh, uh, despotic dictator or a government who doesn't like what you say, what you say about a particular subject cannot prevent you from accessing the network. So you have the energy story, uh, the accurate pricing mechanism, and then the peer-to-peer -peer network, which can't, uh, can't show prejudice against individuals. It's, it's yeah. fascinating because what, what you just described eloquently is, is very simple, but the mental model, like it's inherently a positive sum game. And I think what David was alluding to, like altcoins and crypto is a, is a you know, zero sum game. It's similar fiat. You know, there's just a world where you can create more of the unit uh, and it centralizes and all the things we know that come along with it. But when we talk to institutions, endowments, individuals, it just it doesn't match to the, the way that they, they were born into the world and how they think about the unit. So to hear that there is a singular unit and everybody benefits from it and, and you know, from an order of operations on how capital is allocated, opportunity costs, um, it doesn't map. And so there's just this like, again, period, and we're just trudging along and people waking up. And it's, we'll find that point, whatever the number is, where then it's just like accepted. But until then, mm -hmm. it, there's just this like mental gap that exists. And what Marty just said, that makes so much sense, again, being common sense, but still does not map to fiat, crypto, and like almost traditional venture where it's like something's bigger, faster, better. So I need to go that route versus like, this is the thing that works. Now we can all just benefit from it. Yeah. I, when Marty was talking there, this probably happens for everyone, but I'd say probably once a week, I get hit with just the staggering significance of Bitcoin, you know, and, and that was happening for me as Marty was talking about. It, it's just remarkable that it's the silver bullet for like the two most important things that you could try to install in the world, which is, which is, you know, abundant energy, to, you know, to, to advance civilization, abundant energy and deflationary currency, currency that allows savers to grow their purchasing power over time just by saving. And, and those two things are fused together in Bitcoin and it becomes this, the most important uh, cause in the world today. It, it is like being a part of, you know, the American revolution, you know, in our modern era, it, it is a, it is a cause worth advancing, worth devoting your time to, because it, you know, this is Western civilization ideals uh, embodied in an asset. And this is, this is the dream. Um, and, it, and that's after that's after years and years full time digging into it. It it only becomes more and more true. And so, you know, yeah. for every, for anyone who's early in their Bitcoin journey, it, it, you, I, I, as far as I can tell, your eyes are not deceiving you. It really is the the most important thing happening uh, on the planet today in terms of human rights and liberties. And it, and and it's very 
Darwinistic in the sense like if you don't adopt it, there are repercussions. Uh, it's part of, I don't know if this is the right time we have on the list um, to chat about is the lagging inflation and what's happening with small businesses. And I, I thought about this for, for years and I, I seen this in a, saw this in a small taco shop. Uh, I think I may even tweeted about it, but it was like a, it was a like deli style or style, uh, like style where you go up and you see the the price, the market market for, um, you know, the tacos and like the inputs over there. But this was like two years ago, they started having the, the, uh, it was almost like electrical tape over it. So the black, cause it was just constantly changing. And this was like in the middle of Texas. Mm-hmm. And I had this realization because it was another one across the street, but this one had like constant, um, you know, they, they at least were ahead, uh, in understanding it because what happens with a lot of restaurants is they don't actually know the inputs and they don't keep track because they're performing what they want to do or they're good at and, you know, creating hospitality and food. And so, uh, this, this restaurant was actually at least ahead of it in the sense of like, okay, well, I know my inputs from the grocer or from like, you know, tortillas or, uh, tomatoes are, are increasing. So I have to change the price so I can stay in business. A lot of restaurants actually don't operate like that. It's crazy, but it's just the reality. And realizing, well, and I try to talk to them about Bitcoin, it didn't work out. But the idea was like, well, this firm, at the end of the day, once we know what we know and the price appreciates or the, the cost of all the inputs, whether it's the you know actual like CapEx, OpEx, that the only way they stay alive and they stay around over time is for them to hold and start accepting Bitcoin. And that was like about two years ago. And then um, some of the stuff, I'll let Marty kind of like jump into it, but just thinking through like in this future state with what's happening in the market and inflation and inputs and, and essentially recession, and there's less buyers for those goods, unless you're holding a currency that appreciates in time, uh, you're basically working against yourself to the point where you won't be able to operate. And I think it was just yesterday or two days ago, I saw like Bed Bath & Beyond got acquired the like IP and rights for $20 million. Uh, which is just shocking to me because like you just assume like Bed Bath & Beyond, I think a subsidiary of um, Best Buy, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe a multi-billion dollar corporation at one time. And it, it got bought for $20.5 million from some other, you know, PE firm. And it was just, I think that's the way of most businesses will see unless they understand what Jesse Martin, what we're discussing here and recognize it. Uh, and, and we'll just, the next 10 years will just be a, like basically proof of this. And to add more color to this, I wrote a newsletter about it on Monday or Tuesday, I believe. But Michael, it was actually you who sent me a picture <laughs> over the weekend when you went to get a haircut. And it was essentially a letter from the owners of the, the salon saying, hey, it was a long one-page letter that said, hey, we're, we're really feeling the pressures of inflation. They specifically referenced the CPI print from last June. Uh, and explain that their input cost on the product side had increased by 26%, and their labor cro- costs had increased by 22%, I believe. And uh, due to those cost pressures, they're, they're forced to raise their prices on July 1st, which really sent me down like a thought experiment. It was okay, like they referenced the 2022, the June 2022 CPI print to something that they recognized then, but they did not raise their prices until a year later, or they are not raising their prices until a year later. And so, as Michael just mentioned, there were some savvy entrepreneurs who were adjusting prices on the go as their input costs were rising, but there has to be this subset of the economy, uh, whether it be a salon, a shipping business, a pesticide business, that really tried to keep prices stable 
so that business wouldn't go to competition. And I actually I wrote that newsletter, sent it out, and then I got a few responses of people and business owners who said, yes, this is exactly what's going on. Um, the, we've had our labor costs go up significantly and we've held prices stable so that our customers don't go to the competition. However, the pressure is getting so immense that we can't hold anymore. So that's the sort of lagging inflation effect that I think could hit markets later this summer is this subset of entrepreneurs who have held prices stable in the face of rapidly rising input costs that simply cannot hold back the dam uh, of these pressures anymore are going to be forced to raise prices. Uh, how large is that subset? I guess that's yet to be seen, but I do think there are at least anecdotal data points that prove that there are businesses operating this way and we could see price inputs increase uh, throughout the summer. Yeah, one thing to add to that, Marty, as a data point, Peter St. Ounge talked about it this week of uh, from 2020 and 2021, manufacturers have their input costs at a certain price that they're either held uh, on like at a, um, like a, they already had it, held it. And so the price changed from that time to, you know, because of inflation. So let's say the input was $9 on their book and they had a jump and it generally sold for 10. They were okay with selling it for 11, 12, and it hit the books as like an increase in revenue, which is basically what the United States this year has showed from like a GDP. But the reality is like that cost is going to increase uh, their underlying, you know, CapEx, OpEx, and now they're upside down with, you know, just the numbers and how, and then also just the amount of people that are available to buy it at that price increase. Uh, and then I think a, a different parallel, but it's the same concept is what we see with like credit card debt and just um, the different functions of debt from the household that has increased because the reality is they stay, they're trying to stay constant with either what they're used to uh, living by or they're using debt to keep that constant. Uh, but at the same time, like that can only go so far before either they default on it or a bunch of other things associated with not being able to, to afford the cost of living that they're used to. Uh, all just trending to a certain direction that is not good for anybody. Yeah, and by the way, I should mention, like, there's so many misunderstandings, at least in my view, when it comes to inflation. Like, I would argue that the, what the three of you just mentioned is not necessarily going to drive inflation. It's a symptom of inflation, which in turn is obviously a symptom of uh, rampant money printing uh, to, to fund uh, what are often sort of boondoggle expenditures. And, um, but, um, so what will happen as a result of what you're just describing is that it's it's not necessarily going to drive price increases. It's symptomatic of excess liquidity and inflation in the economy. What will happen, and maybe this is just sort of an obvious truth, but I'll say it anyway, is that it's going to um, impinge upon our standard of living. We're either going to spend less or we're going to save less or we're going to give away less to worthy causes. And that's ultimately what's so crushing about inflation. And among alone among the four of us on this call, I remember the uh, '70s inflation, and that's exactly what happened. It was um, it was uh, it was horrific, and uh, we're just repeating that playbook. And uh, the '70s inflation resulted from the many of the same factors. It was um, you know Vietnam War, and it was about um, uh, wildly increased government spending, sort of as a result of the so-called Great Society programs. 
And we just didn't have enough money to go around to pay for it, which obviously led to the events of August, I think it was 15th, it was 1971, and uh, divorcing ourselves from the gold standard. And, uh, you know, we've been sloshing around liquidity ever since. Yeah, we didn't have enough gold to go around. And so we changed what money meant at that point in time in order to make it possible to pay all these things. And I think that's like, it's such a fascinating part of, I I don't know, I, I spent many years in school learning about business and finance and never really got the history of of how we went off the gold standard why we went off the gold standard it was you know the escalating costs of vietnam that um were causing us to clip our peg to gold um which which precipitated the french sending an aircraft carrier to new york city demanding their gold which we were holding for them and then uh, West Germany was threatening to do the same in 1971. And those combined factors led to, all right, well, we're going to just you know, break the, the uh, convertibility of gold um, and close the gold window. And, and then that allowed for us to inflate away our debts, which is what the 70s was. And my favorite chart in the WTF happened in 1971.com, fantastic um, set of charts to scroll through. The, the most compelling one is how there's a, up until 1971, productivity and worker compensation were lockstep. Uh, and then at 1971, they worker compensation uh, flatlines while uh, productivity continues. It's, it's up and to the right trajectory which is to say that by switching to a fiat money standard, um, it became possible to, you know, not keep up with wage uh, increases and not pay your, your workers more, um, despite the fact that they're continuing to produce more. Um, and that is kind of the point in time where the middle class starts to erode. You know, if you think of, of what has happened over the last 50 years, it's been a strong middle class, uh, you know, in, in the several decades built in the several several decades following World War II, uh, being eroded into into despair and and diseases of despair and you know the hillbilly elegy sort of world that that we now find ourselves in, where um, ra- more radical or or populist politicians um, have a, a you know. A greater reception and a, a more welcoming base because there's so much pain and suffering in the in the the middle class. What used to be a proud middle class, uh, and it all comes back to that 1971 moment, where because we start to change what a dollar means, the measuring stick started to shift faster than workers were able to, uh, you know, demand that they be paid more. And of course, there's there's globalization factors in offshoring that are also a part of the story, and and techno- technological deflation playing in as well. But you know, the, to me, when I when you know, having gone down this history, recent history of money rabbit hole, it all feels like that was the point in time where the American way of life reached its zenith, and we have been eroding quality of the standard of living for for you know your median american um ever since and it all comes back to the money which is the surprising thing it's not about politics really um you, you know that's the thing that we fight about 
But the real driver under all of it is that your money buys you less every year and your wages are not keeping up with that. And then here's the solution, this sly roundabout way of taking back that those rights of having a, a monetary unit where your money buys you more every year. Uh, and that's that changes the world and, and it restores the American um, values that that got us to that place of preeminence in, in the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. Jesse, yeah. you just wrote about that, right? I mean, it's uh, I think you did, right? I mean, it's, um, uh, you know, it has manifestations that one wouldn't expect to see, whether it's that maybe it was you, Marty, I've forgotten, but it's the quality of the architecture. It's, um, it's, uh, here's an example. I, I used to tell a buddy of mine when we'd see sort of rampant overdevelopment in the Philadelphia area, and Marty, perhaps you're familiar with this, um, you know, these beautiful, uh, you know, beautiful horse country that's been overrun with these subdivisions. And I used to say to a friend, you know, thanks central banking <laughs> and he thought it was nuts but i actually think there's some truth to that so in addition to what you said jesse um you also witness uh, what austrians would call malinvestment so you're seeing investment in in assets that really do us no good meanwhile starving uh other sectors of the economy of investment that would do us a world of good so you have to ask the question so few do why did cars why did buildings why did everything seem to go downhill around about um you know culture art you go on and on around about that time and one could argue it really does kind of boil down to um uh the money yeah and to that point and something we were touching on earlier is how do we really drive bitcoin as this force of optimism in the world and uh it's noon here and see how we get the noon bell going off. Uh, That's the, uh, the challenges of uh, summertime of outdoor recording, huh? Yes. Yes. We'll have to be, I'll have to be wary about that going forward if we're recording during this time. But to that point, like Jesse, you mentioned people are really focused on politics and they think red versus blue, the other side's driving the problems and has really created this framework of argumentation that people have been stuck in for decades. And no matter who's in charge, whether it's red team or blue team, we keep going into more debt. We keep misallocating money. And I think that's something that we've all tried to do and could probably do a better job of, but it's really moving the frame, moving the Overton windows, like stop fighting red team versus blue team. The money is the core of the problem. Like the, the polarity that we see in red versus blue is really being driven by the money printing and the, the degradation and quality of life, which is forcing people to go out and ask questions. Why is my life getting worse? Why am I not able to buy as much? Why am I not able to pull myself up from my bootstraps when somebody pre-1971 was able to do so in a seemingly easy fashion if they, they were motivated and productive? Uh, and again... The red team wants to blame the blue team. The blue team wants to blame the red team. And we really need to figure out a way to move the framework of argumentation to it's not red team versus blue team. You guys are driven to polar opposite sides of the spectrum because there is uh, bad things going on in your life, but you're misdiagnosing the problem. And instead of attacking the quote unquote other, you should be attacking this thing that you're not even paying attention to, which is how money is created and distributed throughout the economy.
Yeah, yeah I think uh, 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 what's been interesting is I think a lot of these discussions for years have been for the middle class, um, the lower class that need to preserve wealth, um, and that others were like, oh, we're fine, you know, high net worth individual. And we, we talked about a little bit, David, last pod, but that it's starting to seem more and more now with individuals that are already retired and how they plan their life in the next 20 or 30 years and see that slowly being eroded because they had this thought that they saved X amount and that they're they're perfect. Uh, and then as you start to look at the inputs and the costs of, you know, whether it's the vacation or things, it starts to change that dynamic. And that goes up the stack in whatever's cost, whether it's the building, the investments or the deflationary things that we're seeing and like uh, basically restructuring of debt and that $10 million now not, it doesn't exist anymore. It's part of your portfolio. Um, so I think it's just a, it's just a function of like the time to Marty's point of seeing both sides, like it has nothing to do with the politics. It has to do with a much deeper rooted uh, problem. And everybody's starting to recognize it because everybody's balance sheet is starting to be hit year over year with their purchasing power decreasing. Which ties yeah, to the pensions yeah. and endowment conversation, right? It's like everybody's right. starting to become upside down. It's like, how do they fix that hole? Plug it. Yeah, I, well, I'll, I'll insert just the, the scenario here that I think a lot of um, retirees are probably in right now. Let's say you did really well as a baby boomer. You, you've, you've got a, a nest egg of $5 million right now. Fantastic. You did a great job. Um, and you know that you, your bonds, you've, you're shifting to like an 80% bond portfolio. You want to play it conservative. Uh, you, you know your bonds are getting 4% right now. Fantastic. You're, you're making $200,000 a year. And, and you're thinking, okay, great. I'm, I'm making $200,000 a year. And when I started out, a house cost $50,000. I'm doing great. You know, I, I, I'm crushing it. I can live off of $200,000 a year. And, um, and live well for the next 20, 30 years, whatever it is. Um, but the sneaky part is that inflation, the, the money printing that has to happen over the coming decades because of the amount of national debt we've accrued, $32 trillion at this point, uh, the fact that we're already running $2 trillion a year in, in fiscal deficits, and now we're adding interest expense on the national debt, Whereas before we had 0% interest rates for the last 10 years, now it's suddenly 5%. We're looking at adding 1.5 trillion on top of our annual deficits that we've normalized over the last 20 years because we haven't balanced the budget since Clinton. Uh, and that 4% return that people are going to be making, that are, are making right now, that's not going to cover the real cost of inflation uh, every year. So every year you're actually going to be losing wealth just by sitting in bonds. And that's this scary burning platform that, that I don't think retirees realize is there right now. Um, and that necessitates looking at what are the assets in my portfolio that can actually generate reliable yield. And the weird thing about it is that the bonds, the thing that you have been able to, to rely on and trust for, you know, since World War II, um, those are going to be the losing bet. And this scary new, new internet asset might be the thing that replaces the, the function of bonds, of, of what that delivers to a portfolio. And, and so, David, really excited to hear your thoughts on how pensions are navigating this. And, and if that scenario that I just uh, laid out it rings true for you know, the, the folks that, that, that you deal with. Well, I think to your point and... Uh, uh, 
you know, partly this is observation, partly direct experience over the years, but um, is that the, because a lot of folks, to my surprise, still haven't asked the fundamental question as to what is money, that they're not yet fully realizing the pickle they, they may find themselves in. And, and, and secondly, I've found that actually to the point you were just making that it takes a while for people's perspective to shift. So $200,000 may seem like a lot of money to a baby boomer, but, um, but that was, uh, that was when they were younger, that was a fortune. And, and now it's, uh, it's more commonplace to kind of, um, make that kind of money. And, um, than it was, you know, 50 years ago, obviously. And so, um, so I think that shift in perspective is changing. But one thing I will say when it comes to institutional investors is that, you know, and I think, um, Michael, you'd mentioned this earlier, that sometimes they have a hard time uh, finding which bucket is the appropriate one in, in, into which to place a, a new investment. And um, I did witness that firsthand and um, in our own sort of hedge fund life. But I think absolutely Bitcoin's that way. And that's why shorthand, uh, uh, monikers like digital gold can really help get us, I think, over that hump. It doesn't really tell the whole story. I know we're ultimately seeking kind of means of exchange, but um, for now, you know, digital gold is an okay way of looking at it. And I know that uh, I think it was Parker Lewis who recently mentioned that, you know, it's okay. You know, it's like, it's okay to be a, a, a store of value. It can also still function as a means of exchange, uh, but be that as it may, I think just thinking of it as a store of value, is enough and, and it'll be, you know, very soon that these um, institutional investors are going to see their portfolio uh, returns begin to decline because of the devaluing dollar. And there are going to be few places to hide. And um, Marty, you had mentioned earlier, I wanted to bookmark this as well, just in terms of telling the story for institutional investors, in addition to what I just mentioned. Um, you know, the energy wrap is a bad one. I think we all know that and it's going to be hard to kind of get people over that hump. But one thing that should help them is the, is the at least two of the things that, again, I think we know, but uh, but we'll have to do a better job conveying to the institutional space, which is that when it comes to energy usage, we're doing a lot of good when it comes to, you know, load balancing and securing the grid and um, and, and flaring um, gas that would otherwise go to waste and be burned up into the atmosphere. So. And then co-locating energy sources. I think Jeff Booth has talked about this in ways that in um, areas of the world, including places like Africa that previously couldn't take advantage of this energy now can. Um, it's really exciting and Bitcoin's making that happen. So I think um, it's not just about the financial use case. Again, we've talked about it, but uh, it's the social use cases as well that I think are going to help us uh, tell a story. Yeah, David, on that note, uh, one thought we were at a discussion this week, Jesse and I and the team at OnRamp, we're talking with an um, uh, advisor group that uh, oversees or helps you know institutions to the tune, I think close to $30 billion understand various assets. And one of them is they've set up uh, the blockchain uh, you know, task force or consulting group. And you know, internally, there's an individual that you know understands the signal or has a thesis around the signal of Bitcoin versus you know blockchain and wants us to speak to it. And part of the discussion on Jesse my side or the team side is like, what does it look like um, to tell that story? And historically with individuals we've gone through in previous lives with Parker and, and others, it's like you tell the story of, you know, whether it's the Fed and inflation or um, the history of money and what constitutes a good money. And I don't think there's a right or wrong, but one of the thoughts we had, and it kind of touched on what you just described is 
well, what, what do they look at it? Like what are their buckets? And so there's like this alternative asset class bucket and there's this just trend from 2010 to 2020. This is directionally like 10 trillion that is allocated to alts. Now it's like doubled that. And so there's this growing trend and you're looking for, you know, yield and, and to, you know, go into different alternative investments and going to, okay, well, alternative investments income, you know, one of the things are gold uh, and Bitcoin is a better form of gold. And let's talk about the principles of scarcity and starting off a base that can just meet them where they're at. And we all know that there's much more happening there, but I think it's at least something we're going to test versus going to uh, let's talk about money because once you start getting the money, and then you're basically telling them that we're on a different planet, effectively, because they're used mm-hmm. to being being on one planet, and they, it's everything they know. And now we're saying, well, actually, you're not even on the right planet. It just <laughs> it, it it either turns them down the wrong direction, or it just it's a longer cycle of them understanding because they're coming at it from a different angle. Um, and then one other note on that is, is the counterparty risk. I think uh, we talked about this. You and Marty talked about this for years about like, what would you rather have as an individual, like 750K in BTC in cold storage or a million dollars at a bank? And you saw that kind of play out. And I think most people would recognize that there's there's a discount on the money that you don't hold versus the money you do hold. And I think that's going to, over time, start to become more evident with institutions, endowments, and, and the like that as you start, you know, not only looking to have the annuities and the payments for your constituents, but then also... You're going to have the restructuring, the defaults, these, you know, there's so much, there's billions of dollars allocated that where we're going, there's no way that it can all just kind of stay, you know, solvent. There, there will be things that go to zero, but the, the, it being scary that you may not be able to own that or like basically thinking of the Wiley Coyote and underneath is air. It's like we know stocks and equities, we know equities are inflated. We know bonds, you know, are kind of uh, it's like a hot potato. It's, if, if it can fall out at any point. Like, what is that value premium of knowing that the BTC sits there, similar to gold, you can take possession. And I think that we're still so far from that on the institutional side. But I do think if, if that trend grows and what we thought of on the individual side, will continue to grow to the institution gallery because it's just game theoretical at that point, right? It's like you want to know you own the money to pay for the liabilities that you have. And there's a world where you wake up and you don't own the money. And I don't think we're that far from that. Well, every year that Bitcoin exists makes the story a little bit easier to tell because the Bitcoin goes to zero scenario becomes, you know, sort of uh, recedes beyond the event horizon. And so and, and there, too, I think the the real concern that people have had over the years, certainly in the institutional space, is will it be outlawed? And I think we're seeing that recede as well. Um, and rightly so. Um, but, you know, to your point, Michael, Another easily digestible way to, to, to put it when speaking with institutional investors is, you know, commodities have cycles and we're seeing already, as Larry Lepard and others will uh, be sure to mention, is that, um, you know, gold and silver, too, arguably are about to enter into a new commodity cycle. I would argue it's, it's completely predictable because of, you know, again, the money printing of the last couple of years. But um, even if it's just a cycle, um, I think you could talk to an institutional investor and say, yeah, you know, this is very much like gold. But uh, as you said, Michael, it's even better for the following reasons. So you don't have to go into the what is money? Uh, are you on a different planet kind of, um, you know, rabbit hole? Because that's uh, that's a harder sell. Yeah, we could save that for the like in-laws and the family members. So, that, you know, <laughs> one of my favorite stories is Marty's uncle, him telling, I guess he, or he could probably tell, he could definitely tell better than I can. Yeah, I was a very, uh, I was a very adamant Schiller back in the 2013, 2014 era, and 
before the price run up or during the beginning of the price run up during that cycle I essentially sent an e email to a couple of my uncles who were well off like you guys should be looking into this like we've completely messed up the money here's Bitcoin here's how it works uh, and one of my emails uncle my mother and, or emailed my mother and told her uh, that I should not be giving crackpot investment advice to successful <laughs> people uh, and that I should never reach out to pick people to show Bitcoin in that fashion. Um, well, the advantage is if you think you're crazy anyway, then you can get away with saying things like that. Yes. It was funny, too, because his son's in the 2017 bull market was shilling me ripple, so it, it all comes back full circle. So wait, uh, what, so what do your uncle and your, your mother say now? I mean, now with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, I think... Uh, for my uncle, me being on Tucker Carlson was a big uh, was a big tipping point for him. Where he's like, "Oh, Tucker gets it." And you're talking about Bitcoin on Tucker; it must be a thing. Uh, but I think they get it now. It was very early on. I was young. I was like 22, as well, and not as articulate and um, put together as I am, as I like to think of myself now. Uh, <laughs> I think I've definitely gotten better at at approaching it, and that's one thing. I forget where I was talking about this. It'd be yesterday. The day before, yeah, yeah, I was. Talking, I recorded a podcast with Sam Wooters from River, and we were talking about his most recent research report that he put out for them on on global payments, remittances, and Bitcoin's um, Bitcoin's position in that world. And he's done a lot of education over the years. And really, the best way to approach Bitcoin education, we both agreed on, is to ask questions. Don't sort of give uh, a full frontal like, "Here's we messed up the money." People don't know what money is. It's like Michael was just saying, meet people where they are. And the best way to do that is to ask questions. Like, what do you understand about Bitcoin? How are you thinking about it? It's um, probably what I should have done in 2014, <laughs> but uh, I was a brash. Marty, now you're, you're, you're a nightmare for Thanksgiving dinner because you know, mo most people have that, uh, that uncle who likes Tar Tucker Carlson uh, and w it will bring that into the conversation and create a rift. Uh, but few people have the the guy at the table who was on Tucker Carlson and can speak with an additional authority about, you know, actually, I know what I'm talking about here. Yeah, it's, it's, still, green. it's still a no go discussion for me at Thanksgiving. It's not worth it. It's again, let people come to you and then ask them questions. That's that's my approach to Bitcoin education. Now. And that's in the green and, and Thanksgiving. Generally, the, the Schiller in Thanksgiving gets it short-lived. And the next Thanksgiving, they're just like, what did you tell me to do? <laughs> yeah, what it's a good uh, signal, I guess. One, one thing uh, Marty said about meeting people, I think like there's a, a great asymmetry in uh, meeting people where they are. We're talking about David's background in, in, in the institutional space and knowledge, but also understanding Bitcoin, understanding money, and thinking about these things from first principles. It's part, about, it's part of the podcast, part about the stuff we're building with OnRamp, but just thinking about this pod as well, that like very often the fund, when we think about the trust, it's like, well, why hasn't it been done that where you can take deliverance? Like, well, there's there's reasons behind it and it has to do with the traditional person coming into Bitcoin was from Wall Street. They're probably never sent a transaction. They may never want to. They're worried. There's logistics that go into place. And then on the other side of it, the individual that is concerned about custody and you know is fine with sending you know the mechanics of sending a transaction it wants nothing to do with anything structured around a way to bring in and meet people where there are 
and that that's okay and it's perfectly fine. I think everybody on this call lives in both of those worlds, and it's what makes this such a great uh, opportunity because you, you can play and have your feet in both. And in that is where all the I think next ten years of uh, whether it's you know wealth will be generated, but also relationships and network will continue to grow because you can kind of see like, okay, I understand there's principles to Bitcoin to make it different than everything else. But I also understand there's a reason why the traditional world kind of was structured around that. And how do you form fit it around Bitcoin's property? So it has longevity while also still meeting the individuals that hold the capital. Cause the reality is it's 99.9% of the capital is still sitting with individuals and all these other assets. It needs to come into Bitcoin and you have to be able to provide people people with the right products, services, and also to articulate in a way that meets them, uh, you know, where they're at. So you can make that onboard in as seamless as possible. Yeah. I I keep thinking about um, a sort of combination of what what Michael and David were saying that, you know, in in some ways we overcomplicate it because for for institutional allocators, the story is still or should be uh, this is digital gold. And this has a role as just, just that meme, that two, two word thought um, can really get the message across in terms of, of what this asset can do as a starting point. And that, that's the thing that you, you know, they aren't aware of is, is digital gold is the, the minimum of what Bitcoin is. But, you know, I, I love the story of um, the Winklevoss twins because that's their thesis. That's, that's how they got into Bitcoin in 2011, I think they bought Bitcoin when it was uh, $11. You know, they were fresh off of their court winnings versus Zuck. Um, I forget how much they, they got from that. I think it was like 60 million. And I think they plunked like 10 million into Bitcoin because they heard about it at a party in Ibiza, <laughs> a beach party in Ibiza, and they looked into it and they did their research. And, and the thesis became for them that this is digital gold and it will match gold over time. And that's, that's all they thought it was. I think that's all they still think it is. Uh, and obviously they've, because they don't fully understand Bitcoin, they've gotten into altcoins and taken on some, some, you know, they've gotten into a little bit of trouble with some yield uh, products. So they don't fully understand Bitcoin, but they understood it enough and they still understand it enough to have a position and hold on to that position. And that has turned them into billionaires. Um, and, th- you know, that we're still so far from that gold valuation, that gold parity. That's, I, I forget, that's something like $400,000, $500,000 per Bitcoin to match gold in terms of the total valuation of that asset. And that's enough. You know, that's a 20x from here. Um, and if we can make that case to institutional allocators, uh, they can see that this is a, 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 has an asymmetric upside and is something that is currently missing from their portfolios. Well, Jesse, too, uh, it occurs to me that, you know, we spent a lot of the, this conversation talking about how do you sell institutional allocators on Bitcoin? But ultimately, I think the sales pitch is, and it's self-evident to us, but it's potentially not to um, institutional investors, that this will this is ultimately to the benefit of your underlying constituents, whether it's a pension holder or what have you. And, um, and we, we shouldn't lose sight of that perhaps obvious point because this isn't about like, 
uh, as something as crass as just you know maximizing returns much as we want to do that on a risk adjusted basis it's really about making sure that we can meet the liabilities that uh, uh, in the case of a pension that they've accrued over time and the obligations that they owe their underlying pension holders. And um, so there is a, a nobler purpose here beyond what we believe to be the noble purpose of Bitcoin. But strictly speaking, within the institutional space, it's about, um, you know, expanding the footprint of an art museum or, or yeah, meeting the obligations you may have uh, to, to a pension holder and uh, many of whom are blue collar and, you know, the, the first responders and so forth. I mean, it's um, it's uh, I, I think that's something that uh, ought to be explicitly conveyed when we are talking to, to folks in the institutional space, because um, uh, it bears mentioning. Now, that that is a uh, really great point, because it's something that I've thought through. And as I've talked to the team, you think about going outbound and you go reach out. The reality is we talk about returns and numbers, but at the end of the day, it's all about people and individuals and how their their basically livelihood is impacted by all of this. And so that's where we talk about being a positive sum game. Like imagine what better world can you be that you can actually make, you can still be capitalistic, you can still generate and build a business, but at the same time impact individuals uh, from what, or help, I don't want to say save them, but help uh, them benefit from where, where we all know this is heading, right? Because uh, there's going to be winners, there's going to be losers. And so, yeah, it's a great point to really like get back to the first principles of that. There's individuals that have liabilities owed to them, and there's also individuals that are thinking about this, and they're worried about their own, you know, situation as far as their balance sheet. And meeting them and helping them understand it goes so much further from like an empathetic standpoint um, that I think will resonate. And I think that can go across from anybody that's trying to get uh, people involved, or at least just paying attention to what's happening here. Yeah, going back to the point of risk-adjusted returns with Bitcoin specifically, I, and that's always one of the things that has perplexed me from the institutional classes. Because uh, I used to work in a managed futures fund, and so we would index commodity trading advisors, and we would fight for a five percent portfolio allocation uh, in broader, uh, in bigger portfolios of hedge funds and stuff like that. And it was the pitch was simply like, hey. Obviously, managed futures aren't sexy, but when things go to shit, like they will be there to protect the the value of your overall portfolio uh, with an uncorrelated return. And when it comes to Bitcoin, I think that's very obvious. And putting that managed futures hat on, and it, it should be low lift where people are going to institutions like, hey, we're not asking you to ape in and put 50% of your assets into Bitcoin. Yeah, we may believe that would be a smart move. Sure, there's a lot of career risk with that, but at the very least, you should be looking at a small 1% to 5% allocation in case the rest of your portfolio blows up and Bitcoin does succeed. It can, at the very least, create stable value for your portfolio uh, or, in an optimistic scenario, increase the value of your portfolio and allow you to pay back those liabilities that you have. Yeah, th there's an irony here that we've reached a point and Bitcoin adoption has reached a point where it is much riskier to have a 0% allocation to Bitcoin than it is to have a 1% allocation to Bitcoin. And mm -hmm. most people haven't made that cognitive leap yet. So there's a lot of people taking on uh, risk that they're not aware of because they continue to bucket Bitcoin as internet monopoly money. No, that's exactly right. And I'm certain, although I haven't run the calculation, but, uh, 
I, there must be those who have. But if you were to run the 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 risk uh, frontier calculation, um, if Bitcoin is in your portfolio, I'm sure that you're getting a better optimized risk adjusted return than if it if it were not there. To your point, Jesse, and I'm not sure what the optimal percentage allocation would be. But what I tell, and I'm not sure what you guys do, but what I tell friends and family is just what's the harm in a 1% allocation? I don't think it's going to zero, but what if it does? You know, you're still left with 99% of your portfolio intact. So, um, so I think 1% is the floor. Me too. <laughs> and, and somewhat uh, shift course here, because I do think there is one topic in the news that we should talk about and really touches on something uh, that institutions have on their mind, which is custody and the counterparty risk that can exist in this space if you don't choose the right counterparty. This week, we had Prime Trust, uh, I guess the receivership files got um, got released to the market and it became apparent that they really did not know how to custody Bitcoin appropriately. So a little backstory, Prime Trust uh, started doing their own custody and transition to Fireblocks, which does a lot of the, the custody for many um, brokers in the space on the back end. Uh, they made that transition in 2021 from their legacy address custody that they were doing. And then at some point uh, in 2021, they what the story that's being told is that they thought that they were pulling addresses from Fireblocks, but they were actually pulling address from their, their, uh, their mothballed legacy address structure, which they had lost access to the private keys to. And so people were sending Bitcoin to wallets that, that Prime Trust actually didn't have uh, access to, uh, which highlights, again, if you don't pick the correct custodian, somebody who understands Bitcoin security and how to do it the correct way, you could uh, end up leveraging a third party that doesn't actually have Bitcoin or access to Bitcoin. And so obviously, mm -hmm. this is a bit of a black eye on the space you had prime trust which up until recently was one of the most most trusted third parties in the space and it has become abundantly clear that they actually didn't know how to do bitcoin security the correct way and so we did you have marty? You there, marty i think there uh, we go so, there we go yep. So like a big a big point of focus moving forward is all right, how do we ensure that institutions custodying Bitcoin are doing it the correct way so that you don't have this operational risk affect institutions, endowments, pe pensions, whatever it may be. And obviously that's a big core of what OnRamp is trying to solve with multi institution, multi sig. Yeah, I think uh, one part independent of OnRamp, we can talk about it, chill it. There's a website. I think the thing that we, t we talk about, like this stuff being alien technology, is that it's still not recognized that this is the first asset that it ha can spread the, the security and risk around um, the uh, multiple parties or multiple keys to, to sign, more, multiple authentication methods. And um, I, I would go as far as to say whether it's an individual holding their own keys um, or an institution, you should look at it uh, specifically where you have the majority of your wealth, you know, stored. So let's just say you have X percentage in Bitcoin's money. Maybe it's 80, 90%, whatever it is, long-term savings. You don't want a single point of failure. Uh, it's in, it just, 
we, it's again going back to we're on a different planet now and we're talking about Bitcoin. But the reality is, right, the, the history that we've lived in is you can call a bank, there's bailouts, uh, you print more money, you get your stocks back from Robinhood, all the different muck that happens, you just get made whole because, it, and also in the United States that we're used to it. Uh, but in Bitcoin, that doesn't happen. And so we've just seen the past 12 years of this ties into the trust, the prime trust situation so interesting is because people will go out and pontificate or explain that because it's a qualified custodian and trust in Nevada State Charter and there's all this like legal structure around it. But at the end of the day, if you lose the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin's gone and good luck trying to get back the dollars or the BTC equivalent. There's 10 years of history between Mt. Gox and now of, uh, you know, all the way up to the past you know year with FTX of individuals hoping or BlockFi hoping to get, you know, some pennies on their dollar. And so I think that's just more of a core, like understanding this is the first time in humanity that you have this asset that can be held geographically uh, in different places or with different parties within a family structure. And then for, that goes from an institution all the way down to an individual. And an individual, I think of this is, all of this starts from individuals, whether you're explaining Bitcoin, they're the CIO, they're the president, they're whatever of an organization. So generally you're going to get an individual that understands this and then they're going to look to either buy or look for a custody solution like an on-ramp or others like it. And it ties into a conversation I had with somebody in I think 2020 or 2021 that the common parlance is, you know, self-custody is the gold standard and, uh, you know, single SIG or not your keys, not your coin. And this guy thought the same thing. His 10 years got in like 2012, 2013, he was in the UK and he was the kind of person, uh, there's probably a lot that listen to the show and that are our friends. I would say, I would never work with anybody. I'd be like, you know, non-KYC, nobody knows I have the coin, don't want to deal with it. And then his brother passed away and uh, mortality became real. And he had put all of this energy in his life and learning this stuff, storing it, all the capital he had accumulated over the course of his life. And then mortality became real. And he realized that his wife may get none of it if he gets hit by a bus. And so now he has to think about how do you protect that and think about the structures we're talking about with multi-sig and, and different ways to plan for inheritance, which you can't naturally do with a single you know, point of failure. So I, I think it's just more of an overarching that we want to share. It's like how you think about this asset is fundamentally different, whether it's an individual, small business, or a pension. And that's what we talked about last week. It's like BlackRock is fundamentally not understanding or looking at this with, at the right uh the right lens because you can't put the old playbook to it because at a certain point over the course of that accumulation period that uh, basically the, the denominator switches where the uh, enterprise value goes up side down and the, you know, assets being held are larger than the liability. And now everybody's worried because it's like, what happens if you lose it? And I think that by definition is what's going to happen to or should be in the mind of everybody because you're allocating to it. So you're expecting it to go 10 X, hundred X, uh, and so that should be the frame of mind, but it'll, over the course of the next, you know, five to 10 years, I don't think it's going to be a slow burn in that being recognized. And that's part of the pod on ramp is to like help educate to at least understand how to think about this. And then everybody will make the decision that's best for them. Um, but we've seen the past few years kind of, uh, again, being very Darwinistic, the game theory is not in your favor. If, if you kind of take the wrong steps with how you approach custody or your counterparties. Exactly. Yeah. And just speaking personally, I've kind of spread the wealth around. I mean, it's hard to know when the space is still so relatively young, you know, where best to and how best to store your Bitcoin. And uh, and you guys are aware that um, I've invested in some Bitcoin adjacent um, funds as well. And um, 
And so, you know, when it comes to custody, I think, you know, age counts for a lot. And so BNY Mellon's been around since forever. And uh, Fidelity's been around for a long time. And it's they have the advantage of, uh, you know, the legacy uh, brand equity. And you guys at OnRamp will eventually acquire that as well. But connecting that to the institutional space, I think at the very least to get Bitcoin um, adoption underway ever more so than it already has uh, uh, taken place. Um, you know, we may look to these legacy institutions to help uh, bring it along. And then, you know, you touched on the ETF. I, I, I think you talked about this in your last uh, pod, but, um, you know, my hope is that if an ETF comes online, even if it's imperfect, that it will lead people to say, okay, well, this is the easy way to get access within my IRA or my donor advice fund or whatever it might happen to be. But gee whiz, let me look into this Bitcoin further. And we're going to peel away some people who are going to say, okay, let me look at this more carefully. And maybe I can um, at least allocation, uh, allocate a portion of my Bitcoin to a more intelligent solution. Um, so we may get some adopters. I think we will perhaps more so than we otherwise would have absent um, mainstream adoption by way of an ETF. But I know it's, uh, you know, mildly controversial within uh, the Bitcoin purist space. So I'm not sure if um, uh, there will be full agreement on that. But that's my personal view. Yeah, yeah I think that's I think something. It's... Go ahead, Marty. I was just going to say, I think that's something we all agree, like BlackRock will act as a massive top of funnel. And over time, small percentages of people who get first access via that ETF will begin to go further down the rabbit hole use better security practices. And another thing to note, like, yes, I may not agree with BlackRock and uh, their pushing of ESG, but that's the other beauty of Bitcoin. Again, going back to the peer-to-peer -peer network, anybody can access it, whether you're a BlackRock or uh, a refugee in some emerging market that's looking to escape the country with your wealth. There's nothing we can do about it. That's, again, beauty of Bitcoin. The only thing we can do about it is try to build better more appealing products and compete on the market, which is a beautiful thing. Hopefully BlackRock coming in just simply forces everybody to be sharper and build better products, which should be a massive benefit overall for, for the entire Bitcoin network. Yeah. yeah the, the, the one thing I will add here is that, you know, uh, Bitcoin humbles everyone uh, and it will humble wall street too. So some firms on wall street will get burned on the, by putting their hand on the stove. Uh, and, and that's because Bitcoin has its own way of doing things. Um, in this case, custody of assets is, is different in Bitcoin than it, than it has ever been for the traditional world. Um, and Bitcoin is uncompromising in how it does things. It, it is what it is, and you have to get on board with that. You have to adapt to Bitcoin. You cannot make Bitcoin adapt to you. That's just, that's part of the game here. That's part of why Bitcoin has been successful. There is no compromise. Uh, and th those factors mean that everyone gets humbled by Bitcoin in some way. You all, everyone makes the mistake, whether that's through trading or through trying to, you know, get, get a little juice through some yield product on BlockFi and then poof, your money's gone. Uh, you burn, you burn your hand on the stove and, and then you learn to do things Bitcoin's way. And I think that we are now beginning a new chapter of, of hard learning. Um, the Wall Street 
edition. Uh, and that's not to say that everybody will get burned um, on Wall Street by Bitcoin, but some will. And uh, I think that's going to be, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult thing to have to face that, you know, there's this incredible asset um, that has these remarkable properties. And if you don't fully accommodate how it wants to be, um, you expose yourself to risk that you're not aware of and, and it could burn you because of that. And then you'll learn the hard way and then you'll, you know, come to Bitcoin on its terms. And yeah, it seems. That's, oh, sorry. that's just not how we as humans think because we try to bring our expertise and Wall Street has so much expertise about how to deal with traditional assets. And those two factors are going to run against each other at some point in the next few years. Yeah, that's one of the biggest curiosities over the next 10 years. Who still is around and who isn't? Because I know it sounds very crazy, maybe not to this group, but it's, I see like the Netflix and Blockbuster. You have this thing that disintermediates the physical world. And one, you know, it completely took them out. Uh, and to see what financial service companies adopted, I think Cash App's a good example. They're not at the highest tier of, you know, uh, you know, capital allocation, but they were a traditional, you know, payment processing company that has now fully, or what it looks like, embraced Bitcoin. Uh, tying to David on your side, to the extent you're, you're willing to share some of the learnings you've seen on your invested in Bitcoin infrastructure, how have you just approached it or thought through the? the dynamic in the traditional world that you've seen and also the new world of being Bitcoin native and intersecting or like just a philosophy at all. Uh, I'd love to hear kind of anything you can share there. Yeah, well, I'm not sure if this quite answers the question, but, um, but, you know, I guess when investing in the space, I kind of applied the, the lens that I had uh, developed over time, both as an individual investor, but then also what I'd witnessed in the space. And, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's um, it's important when approaching the space, whether individual or institutional, to to look at it and sort of um, uh, with risk in mind, and and that's why I kind of cast my bread upon the waters and and invest in a few different uh, funds because it's hard to know, like especially absent a track record, exactly how it's going to kind of pan out because everybody's basically new to the space and. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of us uh, in the space, I know the four of us are sort of active followers of folks who are um, intelligent commentators. And, and of course, a, a bunch of them have gotten involved. And I know Dylan's involved with uh, OnRamp and he's great. And I follow his stuff and met him a couple of times. And, um, and so to the extent that they're involved in these projects, I think that provides a, a measure of comfort. And then when they're also aligned with somebody who or a team of people who also know a bit about investing, no matter what the asset class, that's also helpful. And then furthermore, um, you know, it's helpful to have somebody on the team who's actually run the business of a, of a hedge fund or just a fund. And, uh, and that's, by the way, what I used to do. So, you know, it's kind of operations, it's financial acumen, and then it's also Bitcoin knowledge. And if you get kind of those um, combined together, and frankly, you know, with the marketing team to boot, then I think you have a pretty special operation. And thankfully, there are several uh, out there right now. I, I have full faith and confidence that there are four or five that are really going to succeed. And, um, and in general, I think their goal is to do even better than Bitcoin would. We'll see if that's going to actually come to pass. 
I think there's an open question, by the way, as to whether or not there's money to be made because so many of the economic rents kind of accrue to the holders of Bitcoin in this space, um, as opposed to some other asset classes with the, where the, the money managers are the ones making the money, uh, as opposed to the, uh, as the underlying investors. But in, in this space, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit harder, I think, although, again, it's early for the Bitcoin adjacent companies to make money than it is perhaps in some other asset classes. But I think there's money to be made and I think these funds will do well. And then to have also some Bitcoin invested on various different platforms uh, is also really helpful. So in any event, given the, the age of the space, the relatively young age, that's been my approach. And um, I think, uh, I don't know, I mean, early indications are positive and I think we're on the cusp here, obviously, of, uh, of an uptick given prior cycles. So the next few years will kind of tell the tale, but it's an exciting time to be to be here, obviously. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. At 1031, it, we completely agree and recognize that it's in a Bitcoin world, uh, especially in venture, you have to be allocating the companies that are actually profitable and doing things the right way. And Will, Will Reeves from Fold actually had a great tweet that got resurfaced yesterday that he sent out last year um, and basically highlighted that running a successful Bitcoin company, particularly through multiple cycles, really hardens you uh, for multiple reasons like you're, you're forced to run as lean as possible because of the volatility uh, of the cycles that exist in bitcoin and then on top of that you have a customer base particularly in early bitcoin adopters who are hyper focused on ux and security so it forces you to really lean into your product and make sure that you're providing the most hardened bitcoiners the best product possible and adding value to their life which should drive underlying value to your company as well um, but yeah that's I, it's not uh, a direct analog to traditional VC, particularly over the last 20 years where it's spray and pray. Hope you get a unicorn like Uber that uh, gets a lot of market cap but doesn't really provide profits. It's really reorienting to uh, uh, basically the assumption that we're going to operate under a Bitcoin standard at some point in the future. And with that assumption in mind, like what are the successful businesses going to be? The ones that are actually providing utility and then getting profit from that utility that they're providing their users in the market overall. And Marty, I know that you must obviously evaluate both, but if you were to evaluate, you know, the people on the team versus the the idea itself, what do you find most compelling when you're looking at new projects? Uh, I think we over-index towards the people on the team, people that can actually, uh, because we're re-architecting uh, a new monetary system and financial uh, layers on top of that. And I think it's pretty easy to see if you get Bitcoin and you believe it's going to be successful and you see the future and you see everything that exists in the incumbent world and you reimagine that's going to be built on top of Bitcoin. I think that's uh, lower hanging fruit to really understanding rock. And it's, it's sort of easy to see that these types of products are going to be built, but then it's who can actually build them, who understands Bitcoin who understands how to create a company and a security architecture, most importantly around custody, the right way, uh, and understands the nuances and how the protocol has changed over time, how it may change in the future, uh, and thinking smartly about how you build your product with those things in mind. I think one of the interesting parts of the the like venture investment side is you you referenced David like on the. Uh, 
generating profits and it's very hard in the Bitcoin only space to generate profits because there, there's a lot, there's a lot of value that's to be provided. You have to part with an asset, especially at a price of 20 to 30 K of, do you hold it? Do you transact it? Where's the value? But if it would have seen, it's kind of interesting. Recently, we saw Valor come in and lead Unchained's round. They have uh, uh, investments, probably I would say close to five, maybe seven now uh, across the ecosystem with Lightning Labs, BitGo, and some others. But then Franklin Templeton and there's other firms. And it's almost like we, we chatted about well, holding on your balance sheet, personal pension. You know, you're increasing your return. You know, uh, storing wealth. But where are the entrepreneurs and the, the companies that actually start, you know, holding Bitcoin or accepting it for goods and services? And what how does does that change the investment profile as as all of these things uh, propagate through kind of common knowledge of preserving wealth, giving uh, asymmetric edge and com- competition in the marketplace? What does it look like, and who will be the general traditional VCs that start to recognize that? Because I think that is a uh, an interesting landscape. They they went into the crypto stuff, and I think they got burned, and they had to go back to, or hopefully went back to first principles of like, what are we doing here? Uh, and some of these things are securities and all this stuff that happened the past twelve months. But I think there's something there, and mm-hmm. in, in seeing you know traditional PE firms and just others allocate to s- standard businesses that generate high returns and high profitable, uh, you know, high revenue. But then that look, and for whatever reason, whether it's a founder or something catches their bug and says, hey, we're actually starting to accumulate and store BTC. And then we're also just going to start recognizing that we'd like to accumulate it. And the best way to accumulate it is via um, you know, revenue flows from our goods and services. That, that seems very interesting because it gives an asymmetric edge in a world where the cost of goods continue to go up with against the dollar companies that already uh, within the, the marketplace and known for just traditional goods and service products. Uh, storing it in a form of currency that you know basically increases the 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 uh, that increases the uh, burn rate. So basically, they went from five years to ten years over you know the course or whatever the time is as they're holding a currency that is increasing with all their against all their goods and service costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah we talk we talk a lot about Sats flows um, at ten thirty one and really trying to hone in on the businesses that are making it a point to accumulate as much Bitcoin as possible on their balance sheet. And I think uh, leaning into like the people over the idea, I think we see that a lot in the mining space, particularly here in the United States right now. There's a bunch of people jumping into the space, ASIC prices are low, uh, there's a lot of demand for rack space, but what we've seen sort of looking at, at projects that the, the founders that have been around for a couple cycles definitely are approaching the mining space much smarter than than those who are just jumping in and seeing an opportunity with demand response, off-grid, flare mitigation. They, they, they obviously see the idea and the opportunity there, but uh, in mining particularly, I think mining is like the where the volatility of Bitcoin is most significantly pronounced. Uh, I think we see the founder being more important than the idea really acutely, because um, unless you've been through a few cycles, and understand the dynamics of the mining industry and the economics around it, it's really hard to just jump in with a good idea and execute uh, as well as people have been around for a couple cycles. That's actually a great point because Marty, credit to him, has been for years talking about the lead time and setting up these uh, mega mines and what the process is and the opportunity cost. And we saw it play out over the past 18 months. And, you know, the tr- I think the most recent was Marathon and their transition from large scale miners to more 
kind of modular or more flexible, uh, you know, just quicker lead time to get to production and, you know, start accumulating BTC. And I think that's what we've seen also with other firms that get into financial services that if you come from General Wall Street, you know, it might get you up to a certain point. Um, but the reality is the underlying technology and the way that the market structure has to be built is different. And another example is BlockFi, where they, you know, were a darling in the space for years until it was a zero. Uh, and I think that's just a product of not fundamentally understanding um, what's happening here. And then I guess the last one is Je- Jesse just, it just came to mind. Jesse referenced the Winklevi and they were trying to, whatever the quote was, do Bitcoin uh, the right way or, you know, regulate revolutions, need rules or whatever they said. And they lost like close to a billion dollars because they try to get yield on behalf of their clients. Um, so I think the person, yeah, to, to Marty's point in your question, like person really matters, especially this early on. Um, because there's very few people that have entrepreneurial backgrounds and also has, have looked at this like problem, uh, for that long to understand, oh, there's a different way to solve it than what somebody would just come in off the street uh, or from a traditional Wall Street background think about. Well, it also might be a lesson in keeping it uh, relatively simple that, uh, you know, Bitcoin and and in the case of Gemini, you know, all coins weren't enough. So they had to kind of juice it by offering these other services. And that's where they... uh, that's where they got into trouble. And so, you know, there are some really, well, relatively straightforward use cases that are already being addressed and we'll see how this evolves. But it seems like when you get too cute on the margins, um, that's when you get into trouble. Yep. Yeah, we're, and that's, I said this on stage during the live rabbit hole recap at Bitcoin 2023 at the conference earlier this year is like, the things that excite me most in the space uh, from a venture perspective are the most boring products. Um, mm-hmm. Something like Unchained's lending desk, which just has mm-hmm. multi-institution, multi-sig with over-collateralized uh, loans, uh, uh, insurance products coming to market, uh, mining in the mining space, just like boring uh, sort of arbitrage deals where you're looking for low-cost energy and then really trying to figure out how to reduce your your overall uh capex from a price per per megawatt hour um it's uh price per megawatt excuse me it's it's the boring and again this goes back to like the order of operations i do think we will have the really exciting sort of i think bitcoin will consume the the meme of web 3.0 eventually but in this early stages uh, i think the products that are actually relatively boring are going to be the most successful and that will allow uh, a base to be set for which more these more exciting products can be built right yeah Yeah, we're still in that era where the base layer is where the action is at uh in in my book and the piping uh and infrastructure to help people who haven't yet onboarded to that base layer, reach that base layer is, you know, still, still the bulk of the work, I think for, for Bitcoin and Bitcoin companies, um, because, you know, we're, we're building the Oregon trail here mm-hmm. and, um, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built and it's still earthen ruts, you know, and, um, and uh, a sparse network of, uh, refilling stations. And we have to bring all of, you know, the whole population uh, over this path. And, um, 
there's there's money to be made by helping in that journey and helping people do that the right way. Oh, I love that that analogy, right? Because uh, you used it before, but it explains so much. And uh, you know, so you can imagine like a general store next to the Argon Trail, but you know, maybe it's too early for the casino or something. It's like uh, that will come in time. And uh, for now, it's just about picks and shovels and just getting the basics right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, those, those people died of dysentery on the Oregon Trail, or the people had their Bitcoin locked in BlockFi yield products this time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, this, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, we are running up on time. Are there any other topics you think we should touch on? Michael, Jesse, David, before we leave to sort of wrap up the focus of this conversation on where Bitcoin is and how institutions are approaching it. Well, I might have a question for you guys. So um, I haven't yet made it through True Confessions, your last uh, pod, but um, I'm about halfway through it. But um, so, you know, I know that there's a recognition that um, the ETF products that are coming to market are, are not perfect. And uh, uh, so I guess the question becomes from an educated perspective um, and viewing it through an opposite lens, you know, what would make for, if we're going to have a, an ETF, what would make for sort of a dream ETF? Yeah. Um, so I think that the analogy that, that I landed on to try to explain the, the good and the bad of what BlackRock is proposing is this bicycle that has one normal wheel and one square wheel. Um, and the good wheel is the grantor trust model they've set up that allows for in-kind redemptions. That's awesome. That That is in line with Bitcoin and, and how people should um, look to, you know, gain access to their Bitcoin long-term without a taxable event. The other side, the other wheel is, um, you know, the square wheel of, of BlackRock custody and governance where, you know, they're applying the, the expertise and ex experience and learnings of it's a century of accumulated wisdom in, in traditional markets um, and saying a few things that you know, are leaving themselves open to a few things that do not jive with Bitcoin and how Bitcoin wants to be treated. One being the ability to rehypothecate whether or not they will TBD, but that, you know, is a, something that, that is done with ETFs, um, lending out the underlying asset to generate some more yield. And that's dangerous with Bitcoin. Um, that, that's how you end up with a BlockFi or, or an FTX, $1.4 billion of, of paper Bitcoin that they didn't have, uh, that they owed customers. Um, it, there's also the, the additional issue of forks and the politicization of forks um, since BlackRock asserts the right to choose which fork is true. Uh, and, and that, you know, that's something you kind of need. You need, you need to have that, um, right established in documents, but then it does leave this, the champion of ESG an angle to potentially politicize which version of a, a future Bitcoin fork is more in line with their politics. That's a little bit dangerous. Um, and, and, you know, th those are the two big ones in my mind of, um, why that model of the sort of traditional model of how you treat an asset in a fund is, is playing with fire when it comes to Bitcoin. So 
what we've tried to do with OnRamp um, is treat Bitcoin the way it wants to be treated in terms of custody and governance. Uh, and I think that's first and foremost by understanding Bitcoin and uh, appreciating its, its properties and wanting to do right by the end client in terms of enabling the client to receive all of the benefits of Bitcoin um, and, and all of the rights uh, that come with owning an asset like this. Um, so it's a, it's a philosophical thing. It's an educational thing. Um, and then it's also a, a, a structural thing because having multi-institution, multi-party custody is the best way to shift the, the rights from BlackRock or the issuer of the ETF and to the end client. Because when you have a multi-party custody or solution like we've built with OnRamp, um, three institutions hold the key to the assets and two of those institutions need to uh, uh, sign a transaction in order to affect control on the assets in the vault. Um, and that makes it impossible to rehypothecate. Um, it also mitigates the counterparty risk of, you know, right now the U.S. government could go to BlackRock and say, give us your Bitcoin. You know, we know that you or Coinbase are, are the two people that can hand it over to us right now. Um, and having a multi-party custody solution makes that harder. It, it doesn't completely eliminate that potential, but it, but it requires coordination um, and, and, you know, chronological coordination as well. Um, so, you know, th those are the ways in which approaching this from a Bitcoin first point of view can deliver a better product for onboarding institutional capital to Bitcoin while, you know, making it so that they don't have to take on self-custody right now and, and develop the uh, processes and, and uh, roles and responsibilities of how are we going to self-custody, but enabling that in the future by, you know, when people are ready to take on self-custody, if they decide that that is a path that they want to explore. So I hope that provides a little more color about like, I think that the ideal approach to a Bitcoin ETF is half of what BlackRock has done and then half of a, of a Bitcoin first uh, perspective and philosophy. Yeah, I think uh, just a few things. So like Jesse said, the transparency, you want to know if a large pool of assets, we still don't even know where GBTC's Bitcoin is. It's at Coinbase, but we've never seen an address or no, that's just not good for any, anybody. Um, the, you know, obviously central point of failure, you want to reduce that, uh, the ability to take possession is, is huge because over the course of the time, as the price appreciates or the asset appreciates, the risk profile changes. And then you want to at least be, have that optionality to take it. One thing that Jesse didn't talk about, and, um, I think it's, is, it's important and it ha we haven't seen it in the asset management space is, uh, it's very easy to buy it. Like we talked about, I think on the last part or Matt did about exit liquidity and that generally people enter in the trade when the momentum's going and then they're selling at the bottom. And, and I think a lot of that have, has to do in, in the Bitcoin space because they don't understand what they're holding and why they bought it. And so that's why a big focus at OnRamp is, you know, part of Jesse's content and others that we're bringing on is like the educational focus and understanding the fundamentals. So when the price moves against your, your exposure, you're saying, oh, it's not 
Bitcoin that blew up. It's BlockFi, it's FTX. And we haven't seen that in the space. It's partially why we're Bitcoin only because we can actually explain what's happening versus these other firms that are doing the long tail of crypto assets, uh, assets and baskets of all this stuff. They're kind of like sitting on their hands, if you imagine, because their investors are like, what's happening? And they can't say, oh, we put you in all these Ponzi's and they just blew up another unregistered securities. They're just like, uh, whatever they tell them, they tell them, but they can't tell them the truth, I can't imagine, because then they're just like, why did you do this? Why did you put me in these positions? And so I think BlackRock is, that's going to be a big part. It's like, they, they don't understand it. Like maybe one person does, but ultimately the person that's having the call with the pension and the endowment and the institution and they're buying, the person they pick up the phone when it cuts in half, because it inevitably will, it'll do whatever it does and then something will happen and it's just the pri- price of the, you know, uh, pricing mech- uh, pricing exposure in, in the market finding, the, you know, the different equilibriums. When it cuts in half, they're not going to know why. They're just going to tell them, you know, the, and the person's going to sell and then they're going to lose out on the gains and all the things that we've seen over the course. And so I think that's a big part is like the education and being able to articulate like why the price is appreciating, why it's doing what it does, the supply mechanisms and everything we know that goes along with it. And I think that will be very helpful in institutions and in building trust from going from 1% to 5% to 10% versus 1% to zero because they're pissed off that you just, you know, you just lost. They just hit 80% return, uh, drawdown and now everybody's yelling at them versus this is a long-term play so you should size it accordingly on your first step and then subsequent after that yep and not do it not do what marty did or what he claimed earlier and said he's gonna call and tell them to put 50 percent, or they should but he, he won't, he won't. <laughs> hey by the way it occurs to me that uh, i had said earlier i don't know what the optimal allocation was i think actually some years ago i, I read something that maybe nine day could put out that's something on the order of 10%. Of course, everybody has a different risk profile, but uh, but that made sense. And yeah, I can't quote it verbatim, but that did seem to uh, to resonate. So anyway, I just want to throw that out there now that we're talking about uh, allocations again. You know, down in Texas, we, we keep things pretty simple in the sayings. And, and a good friend says, you buy uh, enough Bitcoin where if it doubles in price, you don't sell it. And if it cuts in half, you don't sell it. You just size it, accordingly. you size it accordingly and that's like should be your first exposure. So you're not freaking out. If the price cuts in half, you just feel good about it. You're like, okay, understand this could happen. And if it doubles, you're not like, oh my God, just made an incredible gain. Life changing, you're out. It's just enough to get your first like bit of exposure in. That's perfect. I did have another question, which is, uh, is alcohol the glue that keeps this show together? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So this is the July 4th pod where we're all, uh, or, or some of us are in different places in the country visiting family. And so I'm in uh, mother-in-law's lake house and it's a, in a corner of a, of a bar. <laughs> and there's, kids, and there's, there's kids coming. So yeah, there, there's a little bit of a tape on the, yeah, on the ship. My, my favorite part about that sign is it, it looks like uh, there's a bit of tape that covers up half of a word that, and it should read alcohol is the glue that keeps the shit show together. But there might be kids over there. So that a certain bit of tape blocking half of that word. <laughs> Maybe alcohol is the glue that keeps the show together at some point. Maybe that's the... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're as you know, Michael. You're a young father. I used to drink a lot on TFTC and RHR in the early days, in the late twenties, and mm-hmm. it's it's not worth it keeping <laughs> drinking on the podcast anymore. Our good friend Matt is still coming up that curve on uh, the <laughs> the drinking during the pod. Yeah, well, he and uh, 
um, Jack Mallers were, uh, were dipping into the sauce uh, on a recent podcast. I've forgotten who the host was, but uh, they were being interviewed having just emerged from the Oslo Freedom Forum. And uh, it was clear that uh, they were enjoying themselves as well they should be. <laughs> you got to... It's it's a heavy uh heavy industry to be in. We talk about a lot of heavy topics and stuff like that. Uh, everything in moderation, when uh, when appropriate. Uh, I'm a fan of. Indeed. Except for your Bitcoin yeah. allocation, it should be fifty percent if you're Exactly. I kid, I kid. Well, David, thank you for joining us this week. It's been an incredible conversation. I think, um, whether you realize it or not, individuals like yourself, uh, with your background coming out and supporting Bitcoin is, is massive for the space. Um, if, if only for sending a signal to your peer group to like, Hey, uh, there, there is something here. And I, I think considering the, uh, the times we find ourselves in, uh, individuals like yourself going out there and sticking your neck out, your reputation, um, on behalf of Bitcoin is, is a massive, uh, benefit to the space overall. Super. Well, Thanks for saying so, and uh, it's a pleasure to do it, and it was a pleasure to participate. I'm a big admirer of both uh, each of you individually, but also what you're doing with OnRamp and uh, and some of the other associated ventures. So thank you for having um, been such a worthy spokesman for the space because uh, we need your voices. And Jesse, as I mentioned, you, you know your writing style is so accessible. Really appreciate that, and and Marty, your uh, your Twitter uh, posts keep me entertained, so that too is uh, <laughs> a value to the space. Thank you, thank you, David. I really appreciate that, and and I, I would echo what Marty says. Is you know this is a a game of viral propagation uh, of of the the message of Bitcoin, the value of Bitcoin, and that's how we get through the adoption curve. And it's it's everybody, but it especially is helpful when people like like you, you know. Um, you know, stand up and say this thing, this thing is real. It has value and people should pay attention. Yep. Just echo that. Appreciate you joining. And also the, uh, the signs of encouragement and recognizing what we're doing, because it, it means a lot on, you know, we come from the Bitcoin side and we think we're onto something, but then we've had uh, no shortage of folks that have tenure in the traditional world that say, Oh, this is how I see this playing out, or this is how we mirror both sides of, uh, you know, traditional finance and then the Bitcoin finance. So, Thanks for joining and have a good uh, July 4th weekend. And, you know, we'll see everybody next week. You guys do the same. It's a pleasure. Did I take, Mar did I take Marty's end? <laughs> no, yeah, we, we can end it however. Uh, everybody enjoy your July 4th weekend. Uh, do everything in moderation. Don't get too crazy out there, except for your Bitcoin application. <laughs> Love it. <laughs>